Friday, May 28, 2010, and you've got Oz in your ears. I'm John McCain, and I approve this message. Drug and human smuggling, home invasions, murder. We're outmanned. Of all the illegals in America, more than half come through Arizona. Have we got the right plan? Plan's perfect. You bring troops, state, county, and local law enforcement together. And complete the dang fence. It'll work this time. Senator, you're one of us. Complete the dang fence. You're one of us. Complete the dang fence. You're one of us. Complete the dang fence. Oh yeah, Radio Free Oz here on RadioFreeOz.com. I'm your host, Peter Bergman, my co-host, David Osmond. Yeah, what? what was that? Oh, I'm sorry. I was watching the new uh, the Oil Spill Channel. You got that uh, on? The, yeah. The Oil Spill Channel. You know, it reminds me of those lava lamps. It's really exciting to watch it. And, that's very true. It yeah, does, yeah, like the just, old days. You can just yeah. sit, sit, the thing just kind of bubbling up. You know, they it's discovered now. Better they, than that fireplace. They yeah, they, they did their math. And they found out that it's 100,000 gallons a day. Or is that an hour? I'm not sure. Or it could be uh, a second or a minute. It could be a second hours. or a minute. I, I, don't, I even want to know. I don't want to have the real facts in this, except, except for the fact that I, I had a miserable moment. You know? And I'm usually a pretty happy guy, you know, which is uh, somebody said, go take a look at the NASA picture. So what are you talking about? Said, they gave me the hot lick. I go up, and it's a picture taken by a NASA satellite of the oil slick. And it's immense so anybody like brit hume or or governor barber or all those those other fools um rush limbaugh whoever they are you know the fact is it's major major it's deep it's wide it's dark it's deadly well they're still talking about uh, you know the the uh the state people involved in tourism are still saying there is no oil on our beaches. There's no oil here at all. It's not going to come here. And yeah. so come down and spend your money at the casinos and get on the beach and have a good time. I mean, and these huge tarballs have nothing to do with it. These tarballs are, we buy these and put them on the beach. Well, they, they used to buy them and uh, they used to work in the, uh, uh, in the big slave camps. The, but not but anymore. Not anymore. Not anymore. So while talking about slave camps, etc., you heard our new opening, uh, John McCain. That is direct that's John McCain's ad. We added a little music under it, a little, shall we say, context. But that's basically where John McCain is at. And I love the fact that this man says, finish the dang fence, as if he's living in some sort of bad Larry McMurtry novel. As, you know, <laughs> I just, you know, but, but, but look, Arizona's heating up, Dave. Let me, let, let me hip you to the news. Oh, okay, right. okay. Right. This, this is good. This is good. <clears throat> Arizona Corporation Commissioner Gary Pierce is threatening to encourage the state's utilities to cut off energy delivery to Los Angeles if the city does not back down from its boycott over the state's new immigration law. 
Yeah. The city of Los Angeles. Yeah, right. City of Los Angeles, the, the uh-huh. city council passed a resolution to boycott Arizona because of the because of the immigration law. So he says, if an economic boycott is truly what you desire, I will be happy to encourage Arizona utilities to renegotiate your power agreements so Los Angeles no longer receives any power from Arizona-based genera- generation, Pierce, a Republican, wrote Tuesday to Los Angeles Mayor Antonio Villaraigosa, who is a Democrat. He says, I am confident that Arizona's utilities would be happy to take those electrons off your hands. Isn't that cute? Mm. He continued, if however you find that the city council lacks the strength of its convictions to turn off the lights in Los Angeles and boycott Arizona power, please reconsider the wisdom of attempting to harm Arizona's economy. Now, this guy, Pierce, is one of five members of this you know, a commission that that regulates utilities in the state. Arizona does sell a lot of power and water to Los Angeles. And in fact, Villaraigosa mentioned that in his letter to the guy, you know, saying, you know, we're boycotting you. So Pierce wrote that as a statewide elected member of the Arizona Corporation Commission overseeing uh, Arizona's electric and water utilities, I am keenly aware of the resources and ties we share with the city of Los Angeles. In fact, approximately 25% of the electricity consumed in Los Angeles is generated by power plants in Arizona, and Villaraigosa basically gave him a polite finger. Yeah. Well, Via Ragosa is not only a Democrat, he's also a Latino. Right. So there may be something in that. If, well, possibly, I don't know. Well, while Pierce was sending this letter, Via Ragosa <laughs> was in Washington meeting uh, President Calderon with Barack Obama. But I love the idea that this guy who sits on the electricity board thinks he can pull the plug. You know, we, we'll be more than glad to take those electrons off your hands. Well, this is the kind of bravura, John Wayne sort of stance. I, yeah, I'm so tired of Western, you know, Westerns in politicians. I mean, it, we should have gotten over that uh, with, you know, with Reagan and the before Reagan. It was Goldwater, another Arizona. Well, finish the you know, dang fence, David. Well, I, I'd finish it if I just had if I just had a few people that would work on it. Well, yeah. What happened to all the undocumented labor that built every other fence in Arizona? An American Yemeni critic whose internet sermons are believed to have helped inspire attacks on the U.S. has advocated the killing of American civilians in an al-Qaeda video recently released. Anwar al-Awlaki has been singled out by U.S. officials as a key terrorist threat and has been added to the CIA's list of targets for assassination despite his American citizenship. Hey, don't let his American citizenship stand in the way. He is of particular concern because he's one of the few English-speaking radical clerics able to explain to young Muslims in America and other Western countries the philosophy of violent jihad. The problem is some of them are listening the U.S.-born al-Awlaki moved to Yemen in 2004 and is hiding there after being linked to the suspects in the November shooting at the Army base in Fort Hood, Texas, and the December attempt to blow up a U.S. jetliner bound for Detroit. Quote, those who might be killed in a plane are merely a drop of water in a sea, he said, in a video in response to a question about Muslim groups that disapproved of the airliner plot because it targeted uh, groups that... Uh, we're just civilians and not part of the jihad. Oh, but they're just a drop of water in the sea. That's easy for this son of a gun sitting in his turban in Yemen, you know, miles from any water. Al-Awlaki used the 45-minute video to justify civilian deaths and encourage them by accusing the United States of intentionally killing a million Muslim civilians in Iraq, Afghanistan, and elsewhere. 
American civilians are to blame, he said, because the American people in general are taking part in this, and they elected this administration, and they are financing the war. Well, that's kind of half the picture, you know. It's kind of half the picture. He added that the Prophet Muhammad also sent forces into battle that claimed civilian lives. That's good. That's good. Just blame it on Muhammad. The video was produced by the media arm of Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, though the exact nature of Al-Awlaki's ties with the group and possible direct role are yet unclear. U.S. says he is an active participant in the group, though members of his tribe have denied that. Well, they're going to say, yeah, yeah, he's my bro and he's he's Al-Qaeda. I mean, he's definitely Al-Qaeda. For its part, Al-Qaeda appears to be trying to make use of his recruiting power by putting him in its videos. In the months before the Fort Hood shooting, which killed 13 people, Al-Awlaki exchanged emails with the alleged attacker, U.S. Major Nidal Malik Hassan. Hassan initiated the contacts drawn by Al-Awlaki's internet sermons and approached him for religious advice. A bad move. Yemen's government says Al-Awlaki is also suspected of contacts with Umar Farouk Abdul Mutalab, the Nigerian accused in the failed attempt to blow up Detroit-bound airliner on Christmas Day. Abdul Mutalab traveled to Yemen last year, and U.S. investigators say he told them that he received training and his bomb materials from Yemen's al-Qaeda offshoot. In the video, al-Qali praised both men and referred to them as his students. There's some course to take. Oh, uh, yeah. Here, la, la, you're, you're a good student. Go out there and kill. Go out and kill people. That's what I'm telling you to do. You know, that's, that's what college is all about. Speaking of Hassan, the cleric said, what he did was heroic and great. I ask every Muslim serving in the U.S. Army to follow suit. The man is a beanbag. He's an absolute beanbag in a turban. And I don't, I don't at all support taking out anybody with drones. But if you gotta, if you gotta put a hellfire up somebody's butt, I think he's a good candidate. Here's an odd tidbit from Talking Points Memo. Uh, As BP's high-priced industry experts flail, and they are flailing, they don't know what to do about this oil slick. They're they're covered with oil, and what are they going to do? They're not clean. They don't go down there and get those nice ladies to clean up their their wings. No, and they, they try to put domes on it. They try to suck it. They try to disperse it. They try to rake it. They don't know what. So the president yeah. has turned to a ragtag band of big think scientific renegades and sent them on a mission down there to find out what to do before it's too late. Here's a rundown of the president's gang of five. Okay. The old hand, Richard Garvin. In 1951, 23-year-old Richard Garvin was working at the Los Alamos Nuclear Laboratory when he was asked by Edward Teller to devise an experiment that would demonstrate the principle of radiation implosion. Garvin's detailed sketch served as the basis for Mike, an 80-ton device that was detonated the following year as the world's first hydrogen bomb. Uh, somehow I knew you were leading up to the old so what, H-bomb. So one of the guys they're sending down there, right, okay. is, is the old father of the, of the hydrogen bomb. I, so there's that. you can imagine what he wants to do. Okay, uh, I got it, I got no it. No more oil slick, no more Gulf of Mexico. There you go. Then there's the establishment man, Tom Hunter. Hunter announced his resignation recently as president of the Sandia, or Sandia, I believe, National Laboratories, Mm -hmm. an outpost of the U.S. nuclear weapons complex that conducts high-level research for the National Nuclear Security Administration. So you got two nukies down there. This is nuki number two. Nuki number two. You're wondering, hmm, Okay. okay, the third... 
the maverick genius, Alexander Slocum. But maybe he'll take a, a page out of uh, McCain's book and say, no, I'm not a maverick genius anymore. I never was. I'm just a genius. Okay. Slocum, a professor of mechanical engineering at MIT, teaches a world-famous design and manufacturing class that culminates in a remote-controlled robot competition. A co- colleague says, Slocum has a lot of creative, creative ideas. One in ten are really brilliant, but nine are dumb. You just can't miss that one that's brilliant. So I hope they don't because they might come back with nine dumb ideas. From okay, we got two nukies and a, and and a, a robot. And a robot man. And okay. A robot play, you know, player. Robot okay. idea man. Okay, the no-nonsense engineer. Let's Uh-oh. get down here. Tick, tick. George Cooper. has got a perfect no-nonsense name. George Cooper. Mm-hmm. Cooper's a professor of engineering at UC Berkeley. He spent much of his career in industrial research with Britain's National Physical Laboratory and now serves as senior petroleum engineer at the uh, Department of Energy's Lawrence Berkeley Laboratory. Of course, Lawrence Berkeley Laboratory does an yeah. awful lot of nukes. Another nukes, yeah. Yeah, right. In fact, it does a lot. And what it doesn't do there, it does out at Livermore, which it runs. He once worked with the National Aeronautics and Space Administration to adapt mining techniques for use on Mars. Okay, two nukies, right? Two nukies, a robot guy, and somebody who wants to work on Mars. Yeah, well, as a mining, as a mine, we just just want to go to Mars and look at the view. Wait a minute. Read a little Ray Bradbury up there, you know? No, he wants to go and mine the planet? Wait a minute. Nuclear-powered mining robots. Okay, well, the last. Got, I got the picture. This is the what am I doing here guy, Jonathan <laughs> Katz. Katz, a professor of Washington University in St. Louis, focuses on astrophysics. Upon his return from a quick trip to the Gulf region with the boys, he didn't seem confident that he was much help with the mission. <coughs> so we can pick up again, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. I'll just start with this guy. No, we're okay through mission, right? Okay, here we go. Asked if he was willing to go back, Kat said, well, uh, I'd, I'd be happy to, but somebody's got to send me an email or a phone call. Well, Dave, he may not be getting that call now that he's been revealed as a virulent homophobe and climate change denialist. It's one thing to question global warming. It's cool. You know, I don't know. But it's another to claim that the human body quote from him, was not designed to engage in homosexual acts. Engaging in such behavior is like riding a motorcycle on an icy road without a helmet. It may be possible to get away with it for a while, and a few misguided souls may get a thrill out of doing so, but sooner or later, referring here to the the spread of AIDS, the consequences will be catastrophic. Now, I wonder who who vetted this nutcase for the gang of five. Wait wait a minute. Okay, so we got two nukies. We got the robot guy. Got Mr. Mars, it, it, Mr. Mars, uh, and we've Mr. got the Dean homophobic astroph- astrophysicist. I don't like the word astrophysicist when you homophobic astrophysicist. Yeah, I mean, he's somehow this. Hmm, he's I, he's looking yeah. at the wrong end of the universe. Here's a juicy piece by Eric Simpson in the Huff Post. Sarah Palin recently claimed that American law should be based on the Ten Commandments. Glenn Beck, addressing the graduating students of the late Jerry Falwell's Liberty University, said that God's finger wrote the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. God's finger wrote the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. That is so patently absurd, I can't even deal with it. 
I suppose one might conjecture that the documents of the Founding Fathers were influenced indirectly by God via enlightenment and deist thought, uh, parsed with the relics of Reformation dogma, but to suggest, even as a metaphor, that they were written by the finger of God, thereby granting America the status of a chosen theocracy, is an innovative, to say the least, and absurd. For some reason, the most vocal Christians among us never mention the Beatitudes, but Often with tears in their eyes, they they demand, absolutely demand, that uh, the Ten Commandments be posted in public buildings. And of course, that's Moses, not Jesus. I haven't heard one of them demand that the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, be posted anywhere. Blessed are the merciful in a courtroom. Blessed are the peacemakers in the Pentagon. I think not. The advent and ascension of the fundamentalist evangelical right in America, as represented by Sarah Palin and Glenn Beck, presents an odd synchronism of religious sentimentality and political ideology that is no less a synthesis than the practice of voodoo, which is a cultural concoction of polytheistic, animistic, African tribal belief, and the religious ethos of exoteric Roman Catholic ritual. Yes, Sarah Palin and Glenn Beck are voodoo priests. The evangelical right doesn't accurately represent uh, either authentic Christianity or traditional conservative thought. The end result is an insidious conflation that combines apocalyptic fears with political zeal, posturing as religious fervor, a fundamentalist voodoo that is as superstitious and credulous as the voodoo practice in Haiti or in some sections of New Orleans. The evil in the world that is out to get us per the ethos of fundamentalist voodoo, always uses the tyranny of force, comes in the guise of government, bloodthirsty for the gray equality of an egalitarianism that lowers everyone to the level of dust and ashes. It wants to kill our babies and grandmothers, destroy our marriages, restrict our rights to life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. They want to annihilate us, per George W., because they are jealous of our freedoms, or they want the power all for themselves, gradually leading the world. It stands to reason to embrace a one-world government controlled by the Antichrist. People like Sarah Palin and Glenn Beck make a huge personal profit, both politically and monetarily, by playing on the fear of the credulous and claiming this equals that when it plainly does not. Add to this the promise of manifest destiny, the clearly heretical doctrine that God wrote the founding documents of our country, the notion that we are a unique nation chosen by God to be a Christian nation whose laws are based on the Bible and the voodoo works its strange magic. The most malevolent evil, though, per Palin and Beck and their cohorts, is the government. There is apparently nothing more demonic than the Nazi-like fascist and antichrist political desire to steal our money via taxation. The irony here is thick. Love of money, according to the scriptures, is the root of all evil. Failing to love God and one's neighbor, and more according to Christ, failure to love one's enemy is immoral. Investing your life in the abundance of your possessions is foolishness and idolatry. Well, that may be a little bit over the top, but there is an interesting equation there. It's far easier to politicize spiritual life and to blame and scapegoat someone out there, the homosexual, the socialist, the leftist, the fundamentalist, the African-American, the atheist, the Jew, the illegal alien, the other, the not-me, than it is to blame oneself and to actually strive to be virtuous. As Alexander Solzhenitsyn writes in the Gulag Archipelago, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. 
But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart?
This one's out of McNewspaper. The U.S. government is ordering energy giant BP to find less toxic chemicals to break up the Gulf of Mexico oil spill amid evidence that the dispersants are not effective and could actually make the spill more harmful to marine life. Uh, th- this is this is madness. It's madness. It's madness that we're drilling there in the first place, but it's madness the way it's being handled. And maybe that maybe it couldn't get any better. I mean, maybe we're not prepared. Maybe no one was prepared for this type of disaster. All we did was make it happen. We just had no plan to stop it. I think that's called just do it. Doesn't matter what the concomitants are. Hey, if you can, just do it. The Environmental Protection Agency said that BP has to choose an alternative dispersant and must begin using it soon like now. So far, BP has put about 600,000 gallons of the chemical mixture Corexit 9500 on the surface and 55,000 gallons on the sea bottom. Corexit 9500? That sounds like something out of a bad science fiction movie. Well, this is becoming a bad science fiction movie. Quote, EPA wants to ensure BP is using the least toxic product authorized for use, the agency said in a statement. We reserve the right to discontinue the use of this dispersant method if any negative impacts of the environment outweigh the benefits. The chemicals, touted as a critical means of attacking the growing spill, have questionable value over the long run and may actually slow down the bacteria that biodegrade crude oil, according to a review of the latest scientific studies and some of the world's top experts. Just as household detergents break up grease in the wash, dispersants can clear an oil slick by breaking the crude into tiny droplets that fall beneath the water's surface. However, research shows that much of the oil returns to the surface in as little as a few hours. This said Merv Fingus, a Canadian researcher and a leading authority on the chemicals. Dispersants are toxic also, and when mixed with oil can become even more dangerous than either the dispersant or oil alone. Oil treated with dispersants spread through the water, more readily coming in contact with delicate fish eggs and other fragile sea dwellers. Uh, Peter Hobson, a specialist in fish toxology, said, You've just added to the toxic cocktail that the ocean has to put up with. BP will not be able to find an alternative dispersant that is not toxic, according to EPA records. All 14 of the approved dispersants listed on the agency's website are toxic to marine life at levels of a few hundred parts per million or less. Tests on all but three of the 14 indicate they are more toxic after being mixed with oil. Several scientists said they were surprised that the EPA granted BP permission to use the dispersants on the Gulf floor because their use in deep water has never been tried before. Just do it. It's sort of an act of a desperate man, uh, said Hobson. You get the sense they are throwing everything they have at the problem without a lot of scientific backup. It's just, it's just so scary. I don't know where to start. This is from one of my favorite blogs, Talking Points Memo. Chuck DeVore, a California state legislator and Tea Party-backed candidate for the Republican nomination for U.S. Senate, which means, of course, he's a wacko, has a new web video claiming that Jack Bauer, the protagonist of the action-adventure show 24, would support him for Senate. He quote, yeah. The, the, the appropriate tense we're talking in here is would. Would. Okay. Ask yourself this question, Jack Bauer fans. Which person would Jack want as his U.S. senator, the announcer says? Barbara Boxer, a Guantanamo closing, tax-raising, big government-growing, ultra-liberal who reads Miranda rights to foreign terrorists? Whoa. 
or Chuck DeVore, a U.S. Army Reserve intelligence officer who likes Guantanamo Bay as it is, thinks foreign terrorists should have an interrogator, not a lawyer, and supports lower taxes and smaller government. Okay. Okay, this is. Uh, I, I, I return to the future conditional tense into which this this wonderful this, ad is. Written. This man yeah. should be put in a tent from which he should not, you know, you know, come a, back. A really conditional future tent. tense. Yeah. yeah. Now wait a minute. But, just but, like, but read that. Read that line again, because that's 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 copywriting. Yeah, but that is. We'll, we'll go on. No, okay. want me to read, no, All right. Of course, it should be noted. Yeah. That Jack Bauer is a fictional character portrayed by actor Keith or Su- Keith or Su- Sutherland in real life. Yeah. Sutherland is a Canadian Democratic Socialist whose grandfather, the late Saskatchewan Premier Tony Douglas, was the founder of his country's single-payer health care system. The real-life Kiefer Sutherland remains a staunch supporter of his grandfather's left-wing New Democratic Party and is a vocal advocate for single-payer health care. You know, so my gosh! You know, so the Tea Party man's got it all wrong. Tea Party man. Well, now give now. Okay, one more time with his slogan because right. his slogan is just unbelievably well well no, written. I, I think I, it has a lot of hyphens in it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Ask yourself this question: okay. Which person would Jack want as his U.S. senator? Barbara Boxer, a Guantanamo closing, tax raising, big government growing, ultra liberal who reads Miranda rights to foreign terrorists, there or Chuck is. DeVore, a U.S. Army Reserve intelligence officer who likes Guantanamo Bay as it is, thinks foreign terrorists should have an interrogator, not a lawyer, and supports lower taxes and smaller government. Well, there is one thing to be said. Yep. Is that the character of Jack Bauer never smiles. So that's good for a no, Tea Party candidate. No, I know. He talks like this. Uh-huh. I heard a little bit of him the other day, and he just talks like this all the time. Even, well, even when he's gutting people, he just talks like this. Well, yeah. I, I watched him, you know, yeah. and I said, gee, you know, uh, to my girlfriend, I said, you know, he never smiles. The next day, there's an article in the New York Times about a young man who got taken on as a writing consultant for 24. He came in with this dynamite idea about Jack telling a joke, and they said, no, doesn't work. Uh, no irony. There'll be no irony on this show. Well, not only is there no irony, I want to point out to all you 24 fans that they have, they have gunfights, they have firefights on every show with lots of automatic weapon and no ricochets and nothing. No ricochets. People hiding behind dumpsters with people unloading M15s into them. No ricochets. Nothing gets shredded. They are such cheap sons of guns. Well, I think you've just motivated us to go down and, and listen to that conference room there at, uh, at uh, you know, Paranoid Pictures. Because there's a meeting going on. We should check in on it. Well, hi, Bob. Afternoon, Mr. Katz and Jammer. So I'm ready for your pitch, Bob. Just have five seconds before lunch with, well, you don't want to know. No, I'd leak the gossip, right? (laughs) Well, uh, here it is. Quant and crash. Okay, Hmm. your good guys are flash crash. All right. And speedy quant. Now, quant's a guy who measures everything in liquidity. Wow. You see? You see? Yeah. But Crash is a volatility lover, and they're like, they're roomed together in this uh, Rocky Mountain chalet. They got a lot of TV stock ticker monitors around. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can imagine what happens when Flash and Speedy take on the 11th second bet, and then that's just the pilot. Sure, I get it. <laughs> Give and take from the rich, right? Oh, and- slippers of pennies every mother loving second. Vegas for nerds, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, okay. You want uh, another martini? Yeah, oh, sure, sure. Serve it up. Thanks very much. Uh, um, okay, these are guys with superpowers. Now, you don't know that, but that's just one twist of this thing, okay? They're hooked into all the computers in China, okay? Because there's this 
accident. See, with Federal Express, I don't have to tell you how it gets there, but it's clever writing. So uh, when uh, when the incentives and uh, rebates and the meaningful profits are going to lead to gang warfare. I like gang warfare. Okay, we're going to shoot that in Cuba. I like it. Uh, where, are you good? Okay. Where, where's the script? Uh, well, we had to burn it. The feds, huh? No, no, no. Our voodoo advisors. Voodoo? Yeah. Uh, they're the people who worked on Lost, you know, where it was all a, all a dream and everybody was really dead. Never would have guessed it. Yeah, well, I watched it on YouTube before the broadcast, so it didn't, didn't mean anything. But, but yeah, yeah, the, uh, the, the story, in our story, uh, Flash, <laughs> shall we euphemize this just because we're in public here, he's uh, greatly endowed, okay? We reveal that in the opening of the first episode where uh, his wife walks in on him in the bathroom where, he's, you know, he's... <laughs> <laughs> that's like that MTV show about a high school kid. Yeah, right, right, right. Well, that's not where we got the idea, though. Sure, uh, you got it from that HBO show where the guy loses his yeah, job. Yeah, that he suddenly discovers. He's like 35. He's got like three <laughs> legs. I love it. I love the extra <laughs> God, I love adolescent dick humor. Well, that's what big TV go around, doesn't it? But, okay, what happens in episode two? Nobody's going to be able to predict this because we got it directly out of some old Eddie Robinson or Bogey Flick, where they're like like two brothers, and and one becomes a crook and the other grows up to be an Irish cop. Okay, so Quant, we find out, starts working undercover for the SEC to expose this kind of a trading. Yeah. And at this point, get this, we go into we go into magic realism. It's Very crazy. Spanish. Oh yeah, yeah. It's arty. It's arty, and we can use some stuff from Avatar. We got. A few raindrops and, and leaves. We got leaves. We got leaves. It's just a little shit, but you know, it's useful and it's pretty pretty cheap as far as the ATMs go. A- ATMs? What did I say? ATM. I, I, oh, I meant CGIs. You know, yeah. Bob, it's it's time for my lunch. With I, I'll never tell Mr. Katz and Jammer. And hey, thanks for this opportunity. And my my regards to the missus. Well, Pete, we should slug this one. Farm waste data center ecosystem. Huh? Huh? Yeah, exactly. Well, with the right skills, I read here, a dairy farmer could rent out land and power to technology companies and recoup an investment in the waste-to-fuel systems within two years. This is from Hewlett-Packard Engineers in a research paper, okay? Now, <clears throat> they don't the, have anything better to do with no, their time. No, no. Well, okay. Uh, information technology and manure have a symbiotic relationship, said Chandrakant Patel, the director of HP's. No, wait, so, wait a minute. So, you, so, yes, what, so, sorry. You said that the waste and information technology. No, I technology, didn't say that, Pete. I would never have Patel said, said that. that. Patel said but that. But you say information technology, technology is IT, and IT. all you have to do is add the shh. I, yeah, okay. There you go. There you See, go. why do they have a symbiotic relationship? <laughs> they they fit inside Each one another. Other, How yes. smart of you to notice that. Okay, and he goes on having these data centers in, uh, in, in, in tiny places where they, have, where they have these cows will give farmers a great new opportunity. Now, now I've got some figures here for you. Please. Without figures, this is a meaningless joke. Okay. The average cow makes enough waste per day to power a 100-watt light light bulb. (laughs) In order to find the cow. (laughs) (laughs) No, the barn is dark. Oh, Oh, wow, a light. Okay, okay. According to HP's calculations, it would take 10,000 cows 
<laughs> to fuel a one megawatt data center, which would run maybe your bank's computing center, the one that figures out how, how much interest you've made, like 32 cents during the preceding month. Okay? Banks down, sir. Cows aren't pooping like they used to. But Ooh. here's the thing. we got we got to go now to this clip from CNN No Evil News for the real factoids. According to a recent story in the New York Times, this country's cattle, hog, and chicken feedlots produce some 291 billion pounds of manure each and every day. To help us understand the immensity of this figure, we've invited Dr. Albert Calculus of the Princeton Institute for Obscure Concepts to join us. Doctor. Yeah, it's uh, indivisible to be here. Yes. Um, Exactly how much is 291 billion pounds, Dr. Calculus? Well, let me see. That would be 145 million and a half tons of the... Uh, mm, uh, refuse. Yeah, refuse yes. uh, per every day. And by the year, let me figure, over 53 million tons of... Uh, uh, manure? Manure, yeah, yes. yeah. By comparison, the pyramid of the Pharaoh Cheops weighs about 690 million tons, mm. which means that every four and three-quarter days, you've got a pile of this... Uh, uh, excrement. Yeah, piles of eight of the pyramid, but uh, not so well defined. Uh, that would make in a year you've got about 77 pyramids of... Um, mm, dung? Dung, each about 500 feet tall, for a total heap of... Uh, of uh, fecal matter. 37 thousand feet, mm. or about seven-mile-high pile of uh, the stuff. stuff. Huh? So <laughs> what do they do with this, may I ask? Well, Doctor, they keep it in what they call manure lagoons. Oh, lagoons, mm. very tropical. Much better than piling it up into pyramids. Oh, yes. The stuff must be pretty uh, sloppy, huh? Well, you know, they do say it's leaking out all over the place. Smelly, too. Hmm? But that's the price we pay for the meat we eat. Yeah, well, I think I go get me a veggie burger. Mm. Ecologically speaking, that's a good choice. And thank you, Dr. Calculus. No problem. That's what you think. From the Wall Street Journal. If the trouble starts, and it still remains an if, the trigger may well be obscure to the concerns of most Americans. Could be a missed budget projection by the Spanish government, the failure of Greece to hit a deficit reduction target, or a drop in Ireland's economic output. I mean, I get up in the morning, um, I'm looking for Lakers and Celtics scores, you know, the Giro in Italy, see who's biking well. I'm not just checking out on how Ireland's economic output is going along. So they're right. To me, at least, it is a bit obscure. But the knife-edge psychology currently governing global markets has put the future of the U.S. economic recovery in the hands of politicians in an assortment of European capitals. Now, that must be driving some Republicans really crazy. Remember when French fries became freedom fries because they wouldn't join us in that illegal war? And now the future of our economic recovery is in their hands? Oh, my, my. If one or more fail to make the expected progress on cutting budgets, restructuring economies, or boosting growth, it could drain confidence in a broad and unsettling way. Credit markets worldwide could lock up and throw the global, global economy into recession. Where it is, I believe, already. For the average American, uh, that uh, seemingly distinct sequence of events could translate into another hit on the 401k plan, actually the 101k by now, a lost factory shift if exports to Europe decline, and another shock to the banking system that might make it harder to borrow. 
Quote, if what happened in Greece were to happen in a large country, it could fundamentally mark our times, according to Angelos Pangratis, head of the European Union delegation to the United States. It marks a change, according to uh, Barclay Capital's uh, European economist Julian Callow. He says, it marks a change from a situation in which the bonds of European countries were considered to carry virtually zero risk to a brave new world where sovereign default is one of the world's core economic threats. Bank holdings of European debt are now being studied with the same focus giving to holdings of U.S. mortgage-backed securities as the global financial crisis unfolds, and with the same suspicion that problems in one part of the world could wreck others. In other words, they're looking at the what they call sovereign debt. These, these are the treasury notes of a country. U.S. has our treasury notes. They're looking at Greek notes and, and, and Spanish notes and Irish notes and saying, these could be junk. These could be toxic. Oh, my golly. Pass me the freedom fries. Well, Peter, I've taken a poll. Really? Yeah, I've taken a poll on Paul. Poll on a poll poll. A poll poll. I've taken a, I, I'm appalled by yeah. the number of polls that there are out there. And the number of polls. Well, the number of polls, too. Yeah, right. And, uh, and they know. vote Democratic. Or maybe they're going to vote Libertarian for them. Maybe well, they put them in. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Most of them are out of work because they didn't the polls go up there to the uh, Rust auto belt. plant, something like uh, that. They're yeah. rusting along with, the, you know, their belts are rusting. Uh, okay. Yeah, we've got what? now. Rand Paul. Yes. Rand Paul sounds like Ron Paul to me. Mm-hmm. Of course, mm-hmm. I always think I'd rather have Ron Paul. And, and his father, what's father's name is Ron Paul? No. Rand Paul and Ron Paul. Rand yeah, Paul right, and Rand, Rand Paul. And so we have to bear with both of them. We become then Paul bearers. And I warned, oh, like last week, I read this article that said, man, if he wins, the GOP is going to have trouble in their hands. And here's a little, little tidbit from Politico. It says, uh, they call it the Rand Paul Project. And they said that unconventional candidates are prone to do unconventional things. Like, for example, him taking to task the civil rights bill. You know, and the, 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 he's, you know, racial discrimination, he said, is okay on a federal level. But you can't tell businesses, in, in a sense, he said, to ha- why shouldn't they have separate drinking fountains for their African-American and, and Anglo workers? That's business decides that. And if you don't like it, then quit or boycott the business. And it's really gotten, uh, really hmm. gotten the, the, the traditional GOP, if that really makes any sense. They've, it's got their panties in yeah, a Yeah, sure, because they don't want to go there either, you know. That, that's too extreme. That's, yeah, it's Tea Party uh, stuff. And, yeah. and, you know, even now, we got Senator Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, the guy with the prissiest mouth I've ever seen in the Senate. Not one of my favorite You can just call him Senator Prissymouth. Yeah, well, Senator Prissymouth, who was the senior, um, you know, senator from Kentucky and who basically um, uh, led the charge against Rand Paul, uh, you know, okay, right? And he endorsed his primary rival, uh, was asked about this statement. And uh, he repeatedly ignored the questions, ignored them, asked if he was worried about Paul's viability in the general election. McConnell grinned and walked into his office without saying a word. Now, the problem with Rand Paul is that he has such a narrow and rigid philosophy that it gets him into trouble on issues, said Jack Conway, Kentucky's attorney general. He's the man that's running against Paul. Conway said, it's not just on the Civil Rights Act. Look at his comments on the Americans with Disability Act, on OSHA regulations. So what about consumer protection? What about the FDA? Does he think business ought to be completely left alone by the federal government? Does he want to leave Wall Street alone? Look, look where that got us.
So, you know, that's he's going to have the Republican Party is going to have to live with this guy. And it's not the only one, you know, he's not, they've got a couple who say that, um, well, we'll see later that the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence were written by the finger of God. Yeah. You know, I can remember back to um, 1964 when I had a bumper sticker on my Volkswagen Beetle that said, uh, Goldwater for Halloween. Good digital day to you, dear friends. I'm Reverend Bill Barnes, stormer of the first vigilant church of science fiction. My text today is from the second book of Paul, chapter 2. And Rand went forth unto the tea partiers, his eyes to the ophthalmoscope wherethrough he could see into the eye of his beholders. And he saith unto them, is it always someone's fault? Maybe sometimes accidents happen. And, dear friends, say thank you for that, because don't we know that accidents do happen every day in our kitchens, in our schoolrooms, and even in our cars? And yes, even in our darkest coal mines and our deepest oil holes, accidents can happen. And if they do, well, can't we blame the government? And dear friends, if it's not someone's fault, aren't we glad? Because if it were, then we'd have to take an interest in it. And dear friends, interest rates are way, way down. Now you can get your own copy of the first and second books of Paul from the fine folks at WFCFA. That's White Folks for a Compassion-Free America right down there in Brasero, Arizona. And say, if you'd like one of those front porch signs you've been hearing about and seeing on the news, it's, it's just got those simple words, we ain't calling 911. And after you hang it up there on your porch there, well, you can put your own toy water gun or rocket launcher right there to, you know, give people the picture. So you just send a postcard to sign Divine Holy Name Blessed Covenant Church of the Second Amendment.com right there at Box 1776, Billville, USA. This is the Reverend Bill Barnstormer saying, thank you, dear friends. Romance 
but you might as well be a necromancer. Everybody knows you ain't got the answer. How to win at the game of love. Bramble had to scramble to arrange summer plans for her five- and seven-year-old daughters after their suburban Kansas City school district gutted its summer school program this spring. Gee, that happened to me a couple of years ago in California. I was running an after-school program, and just after the big crash in October of 8, they took away all after-school money. Yeah, across the country, districts are cutting summer school because it's just too expensive to keep. The cut started uh, when the recession began and have worsened, affecting more children and more essential programs that help struggling students. The cuts come even as President Barack Obama and Education Secretary Arne Duncan call for longer school days and shorter summer breaks. But in many state states, districts cutting summer school outnumber those using stimulus money to expand their offerings. So we're contracting our summer school programs, and this is disastrous for people who are trying to keep jobs, particularly single parents. And a time when we need to work harder to close achievement gaps and prepare every child for college and career, cutting summer school is the wrong way to go, Duncan said in a written statement. Well, uh, that's quite true. I mean, but who, who gets the shaft first? 
always the kids. An American Association of School Administrators found that 34% of respondents are considering eliminating summer school for the 2010-2011 school year. That's a rate that has roughly doubled each year, from 8% in 2008-2009 to 14% in 2009 and 2010. You can't imagine what a hardship it is to suddenly not have any place to send your child or your children during the summer while you're trying to earn a job. It is, as we'll see in a moment, the road to welfare. And it's not even paved with the government's good intentions. Able-bodied, outgoing, and accustomed to working, Alexandria Wallace wants to earn a paycheck. Hey, but that requires someone to look after her three-year-old daughter. And Ms. Wallace, a 22-year-old single mother, cannot afford child care. So this is the double whammy, right? No child care and no summer school. So, Alexandria recently lost her job as a hairstylist after her improvised network of babysitters frequently failed her, forcing her to miss shifts. She qualifies for a state-run subsidized child care program, but like many other states, Arizona has slashed that program over the last year, relegating Mrs. Wallace's daughter, Aliyah, to a waiting list of nearly 11,000 eligible children. So she stands behind 10,999 other children who have been denied child care. Why? Despite a substantial increase in federal response, support for subsidized child care, which has enabled some states to stave off cuts. Others have trimmed support and most have failed to keep pace with the rising, ever rising costs, okay, and waiting lists. Only two kinds of families are reliably securing aid. Those under the supervision of Child Protective Services, which looks after abuse and neglect cases, and those receiving cash assistance. Child abuse and welfare, the only road to getting child care. Ms. Wallace abhors the thought of going on cash assistance, a station she associates with lazy people who con the system, yet this has become the only practical route towards child care. So, on a recent afternoon, she waited in a crush of beleaguered people to submit the necessary paperwork. Her effort to avoid welfare through work has brought her to welfare's door. Hmm, how ironic. It doesn't uh, make sense to me, she says. I fall back to, I can't say being a lowlife, but being like the typical person living off the government. That's not what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to use this as a backbone so I can develop my own backbone. We're really reneging on a commitment and a promise that we made to families, says Patty Siegel, executive director of the California Child Care Resource and Referral Network, an advocacy organization. You can't expect a family with young children to get on their feet and get jobs without child care. Absolutely correct. And Ron Haskins, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, says we're going the wrong way. He was a Republican congressional aide and was instrumental in shaping welfare changes. He said the direction public policy should move is, is to provide more of these mothers with subsidies, to tell people that the only way they can get daycare is to go on welfare defeats the purpose of the whole thing. You think? In many low-income working families, child care is one of the largest expenditures after housing. Among families with working mothers and incomes below the poverty line, which is $18,310 for a family of three, child care absorbs nearly a third of total household budgets, according to census data. A third of their budget goes into child care. This is insane. This is criminal. Soak the rich. Come back from Afghanistan. We need the money for ourselves. 
single moms. The social security net has always been in patches, and now it's more frayed, said Helen Blank, Director of Leadership and Public Policy at the National Women's Law Center. For a single mom, it's a lottery in many states whether she gets child care or not. Everybody knows that this is the midst of the disillusionment and heartbreak season, and with a recent outbreak of that suicidal strain of despair up in Boston, well, you'd better keep a close watch on your emotions. So remember the seven danger signals of depression as a general and lasting feeling of hopelessness, inability to concentrate, loss of self-esteem, fear of rejection, misdirected anger, feelings of guilt, and extreme dependency on others. At the first sign of these symptoms, friends, follow these simple rules. Keep working, drink as much as possible, and take your television's advice. And you know, more TVs recommend an amazing new psychic breakthrough than any other. And that's confidence in the system. Fast, safe, and guaranteed by constant federal control, confidence in the system will keep them in power longer, 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 and tend to come and obscure the miseries of disillusionment and despair. Confidence in the system. In easy-to-swallow propaganda form, a new fast-acting thought control. So have some today. Oh, yeah. Coming to the end of another Radio Free Osmond. We cannot escape this web experience without another taste of the tang, Dave. Well, I, I take you to the tang here. I'm thinking of my brothers on a moonlit night. Good, good. Garrison drums stop travel. Autumn on the frontier, sound of one wild goose. Nightfall. From now on, the dew will be white. This same moon shines where I grew up. My brothers are scattered. No way to know if they're alive. The letters we send each other never seem to arrive. And the war goes on and on. Well, that was Best of the Best and All the Rest. I'm your host, Peter Bergman. My co-host, David Osmond. John Cumming does our ones and zeros. Tom Gidwillow puts it all on the site. Phil Fountain, he makes it look beautiful. Dave Maloney does the sound. Bill McIntyre produces the whole schmageggy. And Scott Wilde is our social media guru. See you on the week coming up.